0: Welcome to 90% Mental. I'm your host, Grant Parr, and thank you for joining us for our second episode. Today on our show, we're going to actually look at mental performance from a coaching perspective and from a high school football coaching perspective. Today, I have coach Chris Vassar, who is the defensive coordinator at Sarah High School out of San Mateo, California. Coach Vassar has an impressive background. He has coached at St. Francis High School Gilroy High School, Millsaps College out of Mississippi, Hartnell Community College, and was the head coach for a semi-pro football team called the Central Coast Barnstormers. Along with that, Coach Vassar has a very impressive educational background where he got his master's in sports psychology at San Jose State University. What you're gonna hear from Coach Vassar is some really animated, thoughtful, authentic thoughts about mental performance from a coach's perspective, and also the certain factors that are in our society today that affect an athlete's mindset and their overall mental toughness. He also discusses how he disconnects from the outcome, meaning that how from a coach's perspective, winning and losing is not everything and how he does focus on the improving and learning piece of the process from developing an athlete or developing a football player's physical development and mental game. So I would like to introduce Coach Vasser. Hey Coach, how are you?
1: Doing well Grant, how about you?
0: I'm doing great. Uh, looks like uh, you have a big game coming up uh, in the next two weeks. How's the team looking?
1: Well, as you know as a football coach you never feel like you're adequately prepared for anything, but uh, we're scrimmaging in a few and that'll kinda, That kind of that kind of tells you a lot about your team when you hit somebody in a different color jersey
0: absolutely absolutely well I want to thank you for taking time to to get on my show today because you and I share two passions and they are football and sports psychology or mental performance and you have a very interesting background not only with all the years of experience as a coach and the levels that you've coached at but you've also gotten your master's in sports psychology at San Jose State University. What was it that drew you to getting your master's in sports psychology?
1: Honestly, dumb luck. Uh, I was going to work for San Jose State uh, football, and um, they had offered me a job, and I just needed to find a major. I was going to do sport management, and I When I got into coaching, I researched a lot of coaches and their backgrounds and one of the ones that kept coming back was one of my uh, heroes was Jimmy Johnson and he had a degree in uh, psychology, just regular psychology. So when I was going through the course catalog and majors at San Jose State, I saw sports psychology and I just figured, well, that's going to be a perfect fit.
0: Beautiful. So, Coach, what was your biggest takeaway from the program that you experienced at San Jose State?
1: I would say my biggest takeaway was the deficiency, and, and I still feel this—the deficiency of how coaches view mental performance. Um, most, especially at our level in high school, most places have weightlifting programs, and they talk about nutrition and all of these things. But really, if the if your mind isn't right. None of that other stuff's going to matter. I always use the car analogy. That you, you know, you could have a Ferrari, but if the engine doesn't work, nothing, nothing does. So, I, 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 that was the the thing that I wanted to bring with me wherever I went was instilling confidence, especially in football, where it's not a fun sport to practice, and the physicality of the game can really get into your psyche. Uh, I wanted to make sure that that was one of the things that I addressed the most in coaching one-on-one and in coaching big groups.
0: Absolutely, when you look at the sport of football, there is definitely a grind. On a day-to-day basis whether it's, you know, watching films, whether it's practice and throughout the season just to, there's a grind to it and if you don't have your mind right, you haven't taken care of yourself, your confidence can definitely be affected. You know, throughout the season, depending at the beginning, middle, or the end, but it's just being mindful of taking care of your mind and having that mindset.
1: Absolutely, I, I just think it's, and and this is a profession I love and a profession I've been a part of at different levels, and and I and not to throw our our profession under the bus, but I think there are still a lot of quote unquote old school coaches that don't see the value in building confidence, and they think toughness is a physical thing and it partly is, but it's, it's mental. And, and I've seen kids starting off, you know, we we usually get kids starting off as juniors and they leave us halfway through their senior year. And the difference isn't that they're faster that they can jump higher. It's that they had the confidence and that confidence led them into developing skills. They felt, they developed quicker. I mean, you have two kids, one's confident, one's not the confident kids. gonna He's going to develop faster. For the most part, now you always said your exceptions, but that's what I found to be true. I mean, I had a corner uh, cornerback when I was at Gilroy High School, and he had all the tools, but he he didn't have the confidence. And I told him every day how good he was going to be, and that sort of thing. It wasn't he could catch the ball, he couldn't catch the ball at the right moment with the right pressure applied. So, you know, you get that stuff going, and everything else will follow.
0: Absolutely. And, and as you're talking, I'm, I'm kind of going back to my second question when you talked about the deficiency with coaches, with the, with the focus that co- well, a lot of coaches at the high school level are not focusing on mental performance. No. And, and I know this is a very general statement, but we hear in the world of sports that sport is 90% mental and 10% physical. Why is it, do you, why do you think that since the sporting world for years and decades has been saying that sport is 90% mental, 10% physical, why do you think there's been a lack of attention or focus on the mental aspect of the game at the high school level?
1: Honestly, education. Um, I can only speak for football, and the only Um, I coach football and football is a passion of mine. The other sport I follow, which I actually learned a lot about managing people, soccer, but in football, and William speaks to football, football has, and it's, there's a stereotype for a reason. It's all about toughness and grit and, you know, you don't need to think about the inverted U hypothesis. You just gotta be tougher. You just gotta be tougher. And, and you know that the problem is, there's always somebody tougher than you. There's always somebody bigger than you. There's always somebody faster than you, stronger than you. And I think that you need to give people the tools to navigate performance. I think we still have a lot of and I hate to use this term and throw it around, but old school guys coaching in our profession that and, and I and I hate to speak poorly, and again, I know we're speaking in general terms. But there's a kind of like, well, in my day, we didn't, you know, X, Y, Z. And it's, I just think that that's, people are, and people are afraid of things that they don't know. I mean, if you don't know the firsthand benefits of mental performance or working on mental performance, you're not going to put time into it. And I think for, for example, being a part of our program, seeing you come in, last year i think some of the coaches maybe were not hesitant but were just kind of maybe the word the right word would be just kind of aloof or they just didn't think much of it and then they saw the performances and they the the kids increasing and they talked to the players and how much they appreciated your work with them and and then they saw the benefits and they saw tangible benefits and i think that is that's actually for you know sports is about performance so if you see tangible aspects you know i know a lot of coaches who will say well i don't know i don't necessarily know all about xyz but hell if it works i'm gonna do it so you know sometimes we were blessed to have you last year come in and the proof was in the pudding so to speak where a lot of other places they don't have that ability and it's just kind of you know people saying hey we should try this or maybe maybe there's nobody in the program that that had any sort of specialty.
0: Right. Well, you did bring up being mentally tough or mental toughness, which is something that has been brought up, you know, in every sport. We're hearing it a lot in the Olympics. uh, Hear it a lot uh, within your program uh, to be mentally tough. What do you think it takes to be mentally tough in the game of football?
1: I think in simple terms, being mentally tough is dealing with the adversity that the sport brings and overcoming it. Football has a very there, there's a very strong physical and mental component. Um I'm not downplaying other sports, but a sport like golf, they say, is more mental. Obviously, hitting the ball is you know, hitting a golf ball if you talk to anybody is one of the hardest things to do. But you're not, you know. Nobody's in the background yelling. You're not getting hit in the face. You know, there's not that component of it. So I think it adds to a layer. Now, some people might argue that the the quiet of the golf game exacerbates the mental pressure. And I, I'm a terrible golfer, so maybe I should stay away from using <laughs> golf um, analogies. But I think mental toughness is recognizing that things will happen not letting it affect you, recognizing it, and and overcoming. You know, I coach defense, and when I try to explain to somebody who doesn't know anything about football what I do, I say, basically, all I do is contingency planning. Here's here's what we're going to do, but here, if they do this, then we're going to do this, and trying to stay steps ahead. And I think that you have to train your athlete like that. I think that you have to train your athlete and you have to give them the tools and give them a roadmap and give them the plan that, hey, if this is, ha- if this is what happens, you- here's how you deal with it immediately.
0: No, I think that's great, coach. I think uh, I, I agree with you and I, and I like how you, how you use um, – as a coach, you focus on contingency plans and how do you teach that to an athlete? How does that athlete have a mindset to react, um, not only in practice but in competition. My next question would be, do you think an athlete is born mentally tough or you have to earn or work at being mentally tough?
1: I think a little bit of both and I'm not trying to cop out here but I think that there's obviously people have personality dispositions. You know, I'm more of a, how's the nice way of saying this, high strung sometimes, especially from the months of August to December, if we're lucky enough to play in December, um, where there's some there's some guys on our staff that are, that are more calm. Now, I think that part of the art of coaching is teaching the contingency plans that I just spoke about or, or you know, giving them... You're giving your players kind of a a roadmap on how to deal with the adversity and overcome. And I think the art of that is picking certain plans for certain personalities. Um, Now, this isn't necessarily motivation, but if I was trying to get somebody's attention, I'm going back to my days at Gilroy, I have a player who you had to holler – the only way that you could ever get his attention, and I know they don't say this in the textbooks or in class, but the only thing that worked was hollering at him. And I was in a precarious, a precarious situation because he didn't really have a backup that was any good. And so if I sat him, we were going to hurt the team. And it was never anything like that that drastic where he wasn't breaking rules or – you know, he just made mistakes and, and you couldn't sit him because then everybody would mad at you and you'd really – even him at 30% at that point would have been better than the guy behind him, sadly to say. But I had to basically read him the riot act every so often. I had another uh, kid that I just had to shoot him a look. And that he knew. And, and really, if I did anything more than that, he'd go in the tank. So I think that's kind of... A, that. I think this kind of goes back to your question earlier is... A lot of coaches... And again, I'm not, I don't want you to think I'm taking any sort of moral high ground or I guess I'm just more alert to it because it is something I study. But I think coaches make the mistake where, and I'm, and I'm included in this, we make the mistake where sometimes we use the one size fits all approach or we use, you know, different uh, methods with people and we don't really examine them. And I think that all ties into training that. I think motivating somebody and making somebody mentally tough. The guy who um the guy who wouldn't listen to me, basically I had to say, hey man, you know, you just you just made a mistake, like please don't make that again. And that's a nice way of saying it. Yeah. <laughs> um or you know, almost having to encourage him to like, hey, hey, you made a mistake, like just don't move on. Where the other guy who was a little bit more introverted, and I really think it comes back to introverted and extroverted. The guy who's a little bit more introverted, you had to basically like it's it's not that bad, let's move on, you know. It's like the introverted guy, you were like forget forget the next play or forget the last play, move on to the next one, and the extroverted kid was like, hey, remember that last play where you just messed up? So I think that's that kind of it's 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 it goes both ways.
0: I think it's it's interesting when uh, when you're talking about how you deal with certain athletes whether introvert extrovert and understanding the nuances how that just the way your coaching style can affect a player and i think it's really interesting and and very m- mindful of you to to understand your personnel to understand who you're coaching to get the most out of them so n- whether if, if they are introvert or an extrovert it's just the awareness that you take in your approach to make sure that you are making sure that you're either getting to them and communicating them in the right way, or motivating them in the right ways, and, and keeping them focused. So I, I applaud you on that. I think that, that's that's really really mindful of you.
1: Thanks, Grant. I think and one more thing that kind of adding again. I'm oh, this is only for football. I can't speak to many other sports. I'm a soccer enthusiast. Enthusiast. I've never coached it, but the real trick I feel. And the thing that I think is the hardest thing, and we're lucky, coaching at Sarah, we always have great kids that are understanding, are very mature for their age, and are open to learning. And I think the trick is, especially, and there's been some other environments that I've been in that weren't so uh, fruitful. (laughs) I don't know if that's the right word. But... um, where you balance that not only between the extrovert and the introvert but in the setting of the group football's the most coactive sport and you're all depending on each other and now I'm, I'm yelling and hollering at the extrovert and now I'm, I'm like put my arm around the introvert now the extrovert's looking at me going well why is his arm around him? You know uh, why, why is he not getting yelled at? Why am I getting yelled at? Right. And mm-hmm. so sometimes I if I know that the, the group isn't so mature I will kind of explain that to the kids. Like, hey, and I almost make it a, a badge of honor if you're getting hollered at. You know, if I'm hollering at you, I care. You know, I try to dress it up and make them feel good. But, you know, we, we have a group this year that I, I don't even have to go there. They understand. It's it's intuitive and it's really refreshing that the quiet guy, doesn't, you know, the, 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 the loud, boastful guy hopping around before the snap understands why I'm hollering and I'm not you know, and, and and to be fair, those guys need an arm around them too, and that's when you got also that's the other art of it is know when to drive them, know when to back off, but really creating that environment. And it's any teaching. I mean, yeah, I got my teaching credential, and that was literally half of our curriculum was how do you differentiate instruction, but get an entire group covered. Right, and that I think is the art and the balance you have to strike with the individual against another individual and then in the group.
0: So coach, how has your education changed the way you coach?
1: On a basic level, I think my education has alerted me to things that I think a lot of coaches just do. Just the phenomenon I just explained about the differentiating feedback and motivation you know before I can't really speak before because I got my, I got my master's or I started my master's when I started working in football. But before I really, really dug deep or sometimes in moments of weakness, when I'm not thinking about this stuff, um, you look at a kid and you're like, Oh, well the only thing he cares about is playtime, you know, playing time. And, and I think a lot of coaches think that, know these things intuitively, but my education basically Helps me gain an understanding of it, where it's not just guesswork. It's oh well, this is because of this. Right, right. Um, you know, especially with dealing with kids that got overroused. I mean, before or, or, you know, when you listen to coaches or, or broadcasts or anything, and they say, "Oh well, you know, so and so just got beat. They just got to take him out, let him cool off." Well. You know, that sounds right. That sounds like something you should do. But then and going back to the inverted U hypothesis, well, there's scientific reasoning behind that. Mm. So I think a lot of things that coaches empirically found over their career, I was able to kind of put a, a, a name to a face, so to speak, and understand some of that stuff. And it helped me assess things quicker. And that's really helped me. Um, and 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 I, you know, and this isn't a PSA for sports psychology, but um, I, I was going to get my, well, I, I do have my teaching credential, but I wanted to, uh, I was at St. Francis High School in Mountain View as my last spot, and I was begging them to start a sports psychology program. You know, even training for the coaches, but stuff that's, I think, you know, Grant, going back to your question before, I'm being candid here, I think a lot of the stuff out there and I don't want to sound too judgmental, but a lot of the stuff out there for coaches, kind of about mental performance and training, can be a little hokey sometimes, especially when you start reading these case studies like, what should you do if Donnie does this? Um, I think that you got to have somebody who's coached, somebody who's been in their shoes, getting in there, mixing it up, sharing candid stories about themselves, you know, and doing mutual sharing. Well, here's a time that I screwed up. I think some of the stuff, and again, I know it makes them back to that last question, but I think some of the stuff, the sports psych stuff out there for coaches can be a little hokey and a little preachy. And I think that's where, and even for the, even for the players too, um, and I think that's where there's a market for, for people to come in. You know, I've I've have t- spoken with coaches and get a little off topic here. I've, I've spoken with coaches about mental performance, and of course, I've never met I've never met a coach who's explicitly said, "Well, I don't think mental performance is worth anything." I mean, you know, they pay lip service, but you know, you can give them materials, uh, textbooks, and things. But the book I always give to people that are remotely interested, and I I think I've gone through three copies now, is Coach Nick Saban's book. How good do you want to be? Because it gives Real life, uh, real life examples and applications, and it's candid, and it and it and it gives the background without getting too boring, you know, or reading like a scholarly work, because you know these coaches they're on the move, and they, you know, I I I wrote a book on team building, and um, I gave it to a publisher, and they're like, oh yeah, it's great, you just got to take out the scholarly research. I'm going, well, (laughs) it's a scholarly research based paper that basically I turned into a book. And I think that, you know, coaches, they start to see these parentheses and citations and they kind of just, it kind of starts going over your head.
0: Well, and first of all, I I appreciate you actually being candid and, and being upfront and honest, especially, you know, the books and the education that's out there for coaches from a mental performance standpoint. But I do want to bring up something and maybe you can, this is a nice segue, is you talked about... Kids dealing with arousal and how generally how coaches deal with athletes that have arousal um, situations within competition. How do you deal with it as a coach? Maybe this could be a teaching point for some coaches out there where it's not so hokey and it's more real life story from a coach that has you know over ten years of of coaching from semi pro all the way down to you know you college semi-pro and also high school um how would you how would you deal with an athlete that is in the middle of a game dealing with arousal issues whether if they're dealing with anxiety issues or they're choking how would you deal with that well and i might have read the wrong book
1: (laughs) but uh the one thing that i remember from in school and and and, and hearing was there's really nothing you can do, so besides take them out of the game, and what I think that is the action that I take is I take them out, and I think the the art of, of and part of coaching is selling, and I don't I'm not I'm not advocating lying or you know BSing a kid, but really selling. and taking you out because that's they're already over aroused. Now all of a sudden you're pulling them. Now they're afraid they're not going to go back in. I think mean, it's just, hey, this isn't this isn't permanent. And in the in the few times that this has actually happened in the middle of a big performance, um, I can remember a game last year. We we had a player that was just overroused, he was playing against some some childhood friends who were on the other team, and there was some lighthearted, you know, trash talking going back and forth, and they were getting the better of him. And I know there was some embarrassment on his end. I know that he would felt like not only did the entire stadium saw or see that he was at fault for the mistake, but now all of a sudden he's getting pulled out of there. So what I do, the trick, my trick, trick's not the word. <laughs> the method, that sounds much more classy. Uh, the method that I use is get him out. The first thing I say to him is, listen, you're, you, this is not permanent. And I explain to them. I basically, I explained to this player I'm talking about when it happened last year. I said, listen. And I gave him, the, I literally started talking about science. I might give them the science behind this, blah, 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 The only way that I can get you back is just to cool off. You know, tell them you love them. Tell them you know they can do their job and that when they when you feel that they're calm and they're ready, and soothe them and let them know it's going to be okay and let them know they're going to get another shot. And and then just when you feel and, and you, you know, and I, I rely on my assistants, especially if it's a player that's not in the position group. As a defensive coordinator, you know, I, I usually look at the secondary, but if it's a defensive lineman – um, or, you know, a, another linebacker. So I talked to, hey, you know, you, you're you with this kid all the time. Is he, is he cool? And, you know, maybe ease him back in, throw him back in for a play or two. Now, there's some sports you can't do that, but in our sport, we can. you can pull kids in and out every play if we wanted to. So I think that's really it. I think that's the only thing you really can do is pull them out, talk to them, give them a little science lesson, and let them know that what they're experiencing is okay and that it will be over soon, you know. Give them, give them that feedback, and get them back out there.
0: Got it. And, and is it fair to say, though, in, in the midst of that process, to to give encouragement, make sure getting their mind back to a to a more positive state before you get them back on the field?
1: Oh yeah, I mean that's that is that's where I think the the selling of you know. I, I'll holler at the kid that's making a mistake when on uh, game day when it's not affecting their team. You know, it's just like you hear the coaching cliches, the best time to really get after him is after you've won a game. You know, when when there's a loss you got, especially if it's a it's a tough loss and the game they're all. And that situation, that's when I'm probably the most gentle. You know, and, and it's hard because you're in a situation, you're in the middle of competition, these kids are Getting you know mentally and physically taxed, and you have to basically turn into a big brother slash father figure and put your arm around them. I mean that's really the only way I, I I know that you can get them out of that, not permanently, but not where they're just going to go out for another play and they're so aroused they're going to make a mistake because then you're just going to compound. It. And I actually use that in my explanation too. Is that hey if I leave you out there, you're not in the right mental state it's going to get worse and then you're going to feel worse and it's just going to keep snowballing. So let's let's hit the reset button and let's go. And I always tell them how much I love them and and, and how much I believe in them. And if I didn't believe in them, they wouldn't have been out there in the first place. You know, you got to give them, reinforce that. That's when I really try to use the this, this sandwich approach, quote unquote, um, is in that situation.
0: That's beautiful. You know, I, I think we, we always, in, in sports, we always hear like, I play sport because I love football. I love baseball. I love water polo, and I think it's great that you tell your your players that you do love them. Because at the end of the, at the end of the day, football is a game of passion, and and letting these kids know that you're in it to win it with them, you're all in, and letting them know that you love them. I think that that's just that's great enforcement right there. <laughs> Well, and I think, Grant, this this also
1: speaks to the environment I'm in and the environment that our head coach, Patrick Walsh, puts out there is That is openly said, openly accepted. And just the community wherein it's, you know, Sarah is a, it's a, you know, there's some tough kids, but, the you know, our chapel services and other things that we do, you know, the L word's thrown around quite a bit, and, um, I always thought that that was important, but somebody actually, uh, a, a guy I used to coach with, my, actually my first high school job, um, we didn't, we, you know, we, we had some disagreements and some things, and we, we didn't have a great working relationship Hell, I was 22 or 23 years old. Uh, I, you know, I thought I knew everything. <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. But, uh, you know, this, the, that summer after, he called me, and we kind of made amends, and he goes, I want to send you a book. And he sent me a book. I believe it's called The Season Seasons of Life or The Season of Life, and it's all about this program. I believe, and I might be butchering this, but in the DC, Baltimore area, Maryland. It keeps. It's been a while, but something about Maryland, and there was an ex NFL coach, and that's the whole thing. Is that's all they? You know, that was the takeaway from the book. Everything is about love and, and caring, and and I know that there's a lot of coaches, you know, that that don't feel comfortable saying that, and if. If there's any coaches listening that kind of want to open the door for that, and how how do I get that in my program or if you're if you're dealing with the overly macho culture to the point where it's debilitating, I highly recommend that book and I can do a little research on it, and maybe you can put it in your at the link or in the description of the pod um, if, if anybody's interested in
0: that absolutely, I think great idea. I will do that um, You talked about culture. How important, it is, how important is it to have the coach involved when either creating culture or enhancing the culture to get a team to be bought into mental performance?
1: I think it's everything. I don't think you can do it um, if you don't have the support of not only the coach but the administration. Um, it, it strictly, I'm going to strictly speak from a Coach building a culture. That's not a sports psychologist coming in, but somebody on the staff. It it starts with the it starts at the top. Um, the years that I had one year in football, that we had a bad team culture, and it you know the, it, it's, it's because we weren't gelled as a staff and the vision that we wanted to go. Um, I think that the the leader has to set the mission statement out for the program and for what, and it, and it starts it starts with what do you want to be? Who do you you know? What do you want to be? What do you want to do? You know, mark out what's important. Um, I was not there, but Gary Barnett, the legendary Northwestern coach, I believe he was at Colorado as well, came and spoke to San Jose State. This I think before I got there with Coach Tommy. And he said something, and I again, I'm hearing the second hand, but he said something that's always stuck with me, and he said, the hardest thing to do is to write down your philosophy. And I remember the gentleman telling me this, you know, I kind of, you know, kind of laughed, not really laughed, but kind of went, huh, and he, oh, okay. And he, I don't think he thought that I believed him or, or agreed. He goes, well, write it down. And, and I went home, and I and I tried to, that night, I tried to sit down and write, you know, just a paragraph of what my philosophy was as a coach and couldn't do it. And I think that's so important that you need a uh, roadmap, you need a plan. And, and if you're going to build a culture, what culture do you want? Um, how are you going to identify it? How are you going to sell it to your staff? Then not only how are you going to sell it, but how are you going to get them to buy in? And then once you get them to buy in, now you have to sell it to the kids and you have to get the kids to buy into you. And then you have to get the kids to buy into each other, Um, not only, you know, basically that culture, and then you have to get them to buy into each other to fulfill the task. And that's, I mean, that's basically, I, I did a thesis project, it's not only a thesis, it's a master's project, that was my culminating project. And I read hundreds of articles on teen cohesion, and that's basically what it came down to. Um, was that whole process. And I, I listen to guys and and this kind of goes back to your question, you know, you, you you have people that they 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 say, well, I want to go here. Or I or they're they're upset about the results, but they don't have a process. Mm. And I think this is something that's helped me identify in my in my schooling really and I'm starting to think of these things as we're going through this, is kind of putting that, that face, to that name is, you know, every time I go to a new place and I bounce around a lot was, what is our identity going to be? What are we going to be known for? And how are we going to do it? And, 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 and how are we going to get, how are we going to sell it to them? How are we going to get them to buy into us and what we're selling when you're a new, you know, when you're, when you're new to a place. And sadly, I kind of became Pretty good at that because I I wasn't at a place for longer than a year only but once and it's and it's getting that sales pitch and I, and I think that a lot of coaches and even myself who knows this stuff and you forget it sometimes is well I'm not where we you know I'm not where we want to be I mean you, you asked me that was one on the first question you asked me how are you looking well you know we always think we can be better well how, how do you know if you don't know how you're going to get there how 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 do you expect them to get there. You know what I mean? Like you have to put a, you have to figure that out.
0: Absolutely. You know, I've, I've worked with a fair amount of teams in, in various sports and always when the head coach or coaching staff has been bought in or has been supporting the work that I do, from a mental performance standpoint, it's always been an incredible experience. My my one on one sessions uh, with athletes have been very very fruitful, and and, and very valuable and very um, rich. And there has been times where I have worked with teens where coaches haven't been so much, haven't been bought in as much, and the experience um, it, it took a little bit more from my perspective to get everyone bought in. So, I agree with you. I think you know it comes from all different angles, but when the coaches are very involved, um it not only allows the team to get bought in, but it does you see this transformation of the culture when coaches are bought in from a mental performance standpoint. So I agree with you on everything you're saying
1: well i think and just to add one thing, I think you know you hear the cliche about high school sports oh it's becoming a business, and you know. A lot of people are lamenting that that fact. Well, one of the one of the pros of that in terms, and, I, and when I mean business, I mean it's very, you know, you train this way, you do this, and it's very. I mean, people are becoming quote unquote professional in their approach. I mean, I, even in the last ten years, from some of the first kids I coached, just go out there and going you know, to go out and show up and play on Friday and be happy about that. So now the the lengths that these guys go to prepare, one of the and I know this is kind of a weird juxtaposition talking about amateur athletics, but one of the positive byproducts of a more professional official culture is that kids will do what they think will help them perform better. And if the coach is saying this will help you be a better player, this will help you be a better person, they will buy in, you know, there's some places that are less, and again, weird to use this word, but professional, quote unquote, they don't, God, ah, well, it's just, we just want to go out play, you know, like we want to go fun with our friends and stuff, which is great. And that's an amazing part of sports, but you have to, if you want to get better, you have to use the resources and all you have to do is show tangible evidence that something will work and kids will buy in.
0: Totally. I agree with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. From your perspective, what do you see? What do you see that high school athletes struggle with the most mentally? I think in twenty sixteen, I think that they
1: struggle with the fact that if they make a mistake, everybody can see it. Mm. You know, when I started coaching, and this is not that long ago, you know, we we were still getting VHS tapes and DVDs, and you know we were still trading film, you know, any coach, any football coach or any sport that, you know, started coaching before three years ago will be able to remember the times you had to pull off on the side of the road and meet the coach and exchange E's and things. Well that made it less accessible to the public. Now you have, you know, and there's always pluses and minuses to everything, but now you have these recruiting services and social media and all these things. And it makes, it makes it much easier for somebody to be critical of you. And I think that's the pressure I, I see. And, you know, you hear that kids have it much harder than, you know, even I did, I graduated high school, you know, 13, 14 years ago. I had to do the math on that, it's really sad. But I think that's really what it is. It's social media. You know, if a kid makes a mistake, it can go, quote, unquote, viral. And I think that, Dealing with the expectations and the pressure, and, and that people can be just so much, it's so easy to be critical in mass. I think that is the constant thing, especially, you know, we're, I coach at a school, and we're, you know, the preseason rankings came out the other day, and we're all ranked, we're ranked, I think, number one and two of the major preseason polls for whatever that's worth. And we all were dreading it because, you know, now you've got the target your back, I and mean, it's so much easier for the, Linebacker at another school to tweet our running back and say, "Hey, we're coming after you," and you know, or if they make a mistake, people can just jump on them. And I think that accessibility and the the globalization, so to speak, has made that the the and I and I've noticed it. I've noticed kids being more afraid to make mistakes than they were ten years ago,
0: and I think that's why. Well, I mean, I I think it's a it's very interesting and I actually do agree with you. I think social media, especially when you're dealing with 15, 16, 70 year old kids, there is a lot of pressure. There's a roller coaster ride that these kids experience whether if they do very well and they have all these people tweeting about them, if they do if they don't do so well, then all that, that negative pressure that they put on themselves, it can be debilitating and, and and it's a great point. But I also want to ask you a question on the same vein is when you are coaching a football team that is being ranked number one in, in two areas. How does a coach make a team focus on the right things and get their mindset focused on the right things when there's, you know, social media saying how good you are and there's all these other teams that are coming at you and your friends are saying things? How do you, how does a coach keep a team moving in the right direction?
1: This goes against the textbook, but. <laughs> We have a little phrase. Sometimes you have to create misery, uh, not to reveal the dark arts, but of coaching. But I, I think that you have to create some sort of, you know, uh, chaos. I mean, we play, or, or you know, uh, we have to create the hurdles for them to hop over. I mean, you know, we play Dale South high school. They haven't lost to a team in Northern California since 1991 this will be the 25th anniversary and those guys have to create, you know, adversity. They have to, because I mean, how do you tell a kid that's going out to play, you know, that you have to take these guys seriously when you have beat them the last 30 years by 60 points. And, and, but one of the biggest things is, I think, I think it's a few things. I think you have to, you have to kind of create some, some chaos sometimes, uh, I think that you need to break up the season. Um, football, coaching football. The one lucky thing is you're only guaranteed ten games. So I think kids are much more likely to take it, take a game off, or less likely to take a game off because they only know they have ten. Um, and I think with some of the margins and getting in the playoffs and, and things like that, you can't just you, you can't have too many. Oh, we'll get them next week. But the reality of the situation is you've got to break those stuff up, and you got to be honest. These kids, I, I my job is to prepare them for games, and obviously I'm more worried about their attributes in terms of how they fit into a scheme. But we were talking about an opponent we're going to play, and I started talking about the, the, the player, the key player on the team. And half the kids on the team knew his stats, they knew his height, they knew his weight. They knew what... Uh, middle school he went to they knew like his, I guess they read some articles about him it's his favorite movie and they were kind of joking around and he doesn't even live near here. And, and, and it's you know these, these kids know and the, the, the joke was you used to be able to lie to the kids and tell, tell them how great the other team was you know to get them motivated but I mean these kids they with and this goes back to the whole social media and, and just media in general and tools like Huddle, which we use to show film. You know, you have to if you're if you're dealing with a team, if you're you're playing a team that you have either a a history of having success over, or b, or and or b, um, you've played common opponents and you've had a better go at it than they have I think you raise the bar I always tell the kids I don't, I don't try to sugarcoat stuff because if you go in there it's the, it's the boy that cried wolf you go in there and you tell your kids how great somebody is and they're the best ever well pretty soon when you really get to that guy that can that you really gotta stop they're gonna go oh yeah coach said this guy was good before and he was terrible we can take it easy or whatever I think you just tell them the truth and you say hey listen we're favored, we're expected to do this, so we are going to set the bar higher. Our goals become ridiculous. Like, I want two defensive touchdowns and nine sacks, and, and, and then when we don't get them, then I have almost something to kind of drive home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's really, the big. I think, the biggest tool of, of just setting goals for that week, tailor them to your opponent, and make them almost unattainable. Because I say, hey, if, if, they're, if, if they're as bad as, because you, you know, you hear the chatter. And, and conversely, I don't want us going to a game against a team that's really good going the other way. Like, we never want to play to that opponent. You want to play yourself. And so you kind of reinforce that by making the goals about you and about what you're going to do, not what you're going to keep the other team from
0: doing. Right. Right. Well, when we talk about pressure, how do you, as a coach, deal with pressure?
1: Uh, be prepared. I don't. I don't. As for as high strong as people say I am, and I am. I. I don't get stressed out a lot of the times, uh, or, or feel the pressure. Uh, really, any pressure to perform, because I give everything that I can. I prepare as well, or, or, you know, I don't know about as well, but I put in the time and I know that after a tough loss, and this is not, this is not my way of, you know, you know throwing the kids under the bus or anything like that. But, you know, I, I, I can, at the end of the day, I can say, listen, I may have made a bad uh, Judgment call. I mean, we had a game last year. We just got absolutely annihilated, and I got the game plan completely wrong. My judgment was completely wrong. The way I felt the game would go was completely wrong. The way I thought we were prepared, I felt actually good going into the game. All that stuff was completely wrong. However, I didn't feel the guilt or the the cave of the pressure because I know that I gave everything that I could. Mm-hmm. It was it was bad. I didn't do the right thing, but there was no regrets i mean there's always there's always going to be regrets but it wasn't that i didn't try hard enough right i left you know as a coach you know leave it on the field so to speak
0: you make a great point about preparation even if you prepared and it doesn't go the way that you want it to go at least you can like you said i put everything on the field i i can look myself in the mirror and i put everything i got maybe it didn't go the right way maybe i didn't do you know make the right adjustments but I think it's, it's it's you know I think for anybody as a coach and as an athlete, um, preparation allows you to feel confident, be more focused, get more motivated, and if you do that, you can actually deal with with the stresses and the pressures that come along with competing. It doesn't matter what sport. So. Well,
1: I, think, I also think it's twofold. I mean, if your head's down, you know, I don't have time to read this stuff. but like, I didn't know anything about these creases and rankings. I got a I got a text from a. A coach from another school telling us how we were ranked so high and stuff. I was too busy, you know, preparing my team and, and, and trying to get ready for that. So I think that also kind of it's kind of twofold. You, you you work your butt off, you don't have time to to think about the pressure. You know, people say, you know, people ask me when they hear coaching. So the one thing I get asked a lot is, when do you feel the most nervous before a game? And it's really. The only time I really feel nervous during or before a game is during the national anthem. You know, you got a high school kid out there singing a hard song where I'm nervous, where I feel pressure is Tuesday on the inside run and we can't fit up power or something like, you know, a play. We can't, we're not stopping a play in a controlled environment against the scout team offense, you know, and I'm called my best run stopper and they're running the ball right down our throat. And it's like, that's when I feel pressure, you know, Sunday nights, Monday nights is when I feel pressure. Um, as, as a coach, Saturday, we play a lot of games on Saturday, Friday or Saturday, whenever game day is, that's the easy part for me. Because there's nothing I'm going to come up with. Now, if they, they throw something else at me on the field, that's one thing. But, you know, I've, I've thought about this stuff in a controlled environment. Um, I feel comfortable. There, there's not. I'm not going to come up with something better in the heat of the moment that I didn't come up with the hundred and whatever other hours I was awake or, you know, during the week. So that's how I, I I deal with that. Just stay busy.
0: <laughs> Good. Awesome. Now you've coached at many different levels. Do you see the difference from level to level, from high school to college to semi-pro? Are there any prevalent issues from a mental performance standpoint that you have seen? Is, there's, is there something that sticks out? I know that you, you initially, when we talk, when we started talking about high school – You know, you talked about pressure in social media. Do you see other things at the college level and the semi-pro level that athletes deal with? Well, I'm going to be honest. Semi-pro is its own beast.
1: You really can't. I mean, you're you're, you're, – coaching semi-pro football is the best thing I've done for my um, career. I hate using that word, but (laughs) – my coaching lifetime, I don't know, you have to come up with a better word because I hate using the word career. Um, I have too much fun to call it a career. Um, that's a whole different animal. I mean, you're taking, I started, I was coaching 23 out of safety, who was 35 years old, who had been playing football longer than I have been alive. We practice once a week, only 50% of the team shows up. I mean, that's just a whole different beast. right? Um, but I think that one. I have a hypothesis, and I run it by a few people, and they thought, "Oh, that's pretty good." But I've not really heard it anywhere, and it's not really super scientific, per se. But something that I've noticed over my time working, and it's something I try to be mindful of now. and almost prove like maybe I'm full of it, or maybe it's right, or but um, we. I was coaching at Millsaps College. And we had lost a few really close games. And Millsaps is a great school. It's a liberal arts college in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, And we had a lot. It's high academic schools. We had a lot of kids from, you know, we had, we had a lot of kids from different backgrounds. But I, what I noticed was we had some, I don't know what made me make the connection. And again, it could not be, it may not be even valid, but we were sitting in a meeting and our head coach was, was. we were trying to figure out why this was, why we kept losing these close games, and, and a lot of them in which we were winning. And, you know, I, I saw a pattern where the kids that came from more affluent backgrounds with type A parents, um, and again, I'm being candid here, were freezing in certain situations, and the kids that were not from those backgrounds were not freezing. They were, they were performing better. They were thriving. And I started thinking about it because, you know, we were just spitball and we were just trying to think of anything. Like, was it, you know, are we not practicing long enough? We practice too long. You know, and I, my mind always goes to the mental part because you didn't all of a sudden get slower at the last minute. You know what I mean? Like, and maybe it is, I, 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 I don't feel that way. I didn't feel like this in this situation. And what I started thinking was, is, and I started thinking about these individuals and they came from, you know, a lot of them had good money. Parents really wanted them to play, were very supportive. And I remember going back to fall camp and we were having these sharing stories and talking about a lot about how much their experience meant to their, their parents or their big brother. And when I started to kind of hypothesize, uh, was that these these guys with these type A parents? They were afraid to fail. They were they were being negatively motivated by avoiding failure, and it wasn't a healthy avoidance of failure like Michael Jordan. It was they would they would freeze up, and I started noticing the kids on the team that didn't have that pressure being placed on them by external factors in, in that setting. Now you can go back to the social media and all that stuff, but by family and, and loved ones. And, you know, especially I noticed it was happening to the legacy players, you know, ones that had fathers or uncles or brothers that played at Millsaps. And they were kind of hard. They were, they were taking this on. They were owning this, this, you know, family pressure. And I started to think like, well, maybe we need to work with these guys differently. And and, and maybe we need to address them differently before the game, you know, and, and, and during the week and in fall camp and, you know, and, and address them, and, and talk to them, and, and see. You know, I've, I've always wanted to kind of explore this, and I had a similar situation uh, when I went to St. Francis High School in Mountain View, where we had some kids from the similar situations where parents were very, you know, involved and were 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 very, and it was good, it was encouraging. But and a lot of times it was not it was not the psycho parent up in the stands, you know, placing all the pressure. It's just the kid internalized it. You get. A kid who's more introverted with a type A parent who played football, who may have played football at their school, who may have played football at their school and won championships. And now all of a sudden you're internalizing that pressure and you're afraid to fail. And so in those big moments, boom, you freeze. And I think that is something that I've started to notice and as my scope has broadened in addressing that and, you know, Coach Stephen Lowe, our offensive coordinator, we made um, more efforts to put game-like situations where we put we practice with pressure. You know, where I'm not standing on the field guiding them, I'm on the sideline because that's what's going to be like on the weekend. And you know what? If we fumble on the first play and 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 the defense recovers, it's over. You, there's no do overs. So trying to simulate those high pressure situations really, really focus on the mental aspect instead of just going out there and running plays for ten minutes
0: you know when you think when you look at pressure and i think it's awesome that you actually put your team in real life pressure situations because if you don't embrace pressure going to be very it, you're going to have those experiences where people freeze up the more you can embrace it have a relationship a positive relationship with pressure that's how you are going to get through the tough times be men- mentally tough and then you achieve some really cool, awesome things like flow and peak performances if you can embrace that pressure.
1: Absolutely, especially especially the position I coach, coaching corners. You know they're on an island a lot of times, and, and when they give up a play, you know you have sixty plays in a game, fifty eight of them are good, two of them are bad, and it's fourteen points. Mm. You know you're the defensive tackle inside that you get trapped. Not a lot of people see it. You know, and you're kind of on the not so much the fringes. You're actually in the middle of it, but you're in a, just in a, in a human sight line where nobody can really tell what's going on. But all of a sudden, the ball goes up, and the other guy comes down with it, and the, and the band starts playing, and it's not yours, not your band. Right? You know, how do you deal with that? You know how how do you? And that's why I love coaching my position because a lot of, a lot of people can run fast, a lot of people can jump, a lot of people can catch, a lot of people can you know transition you know change directions do all that stuff but can you do that and get beat and come back and and go another you know go another play one of the, my favorite things to do especially with young corners is during especially early on in the summers when you go one-on-ones and i always love and you always know you're gonna get the great competitors when they get beat and they go no no, no, no get out i'm going again you know i always try to discourage them oh no no no, no you had your turn and the guy that's like, Coach, please. You know, they really, you know, that's when you know you got a good one.
0: Yeah. I works. mean, it's easy, it's easy to
1: run in a straight line. It's, well, it, relatively speaking, rather than running in a straight line with a bunch of plastic on with 7,000 people staring at you. Right. And if you make a mistake, everybody gets, everybody's going to know it's you. That's pressure. And so you have to simulate those situations. That's all football is. Football is a game of situations. That's why I hated when summer camps were legal. We used to go to these camps, and the coaches would put the ball in the middle of the field. It'd be first and ten. you know eighty percent of the game is played on a hash mark. you know it's first and ten, yeah, maybe ten fifteen twenty times if you're if you're real good, twenty times in a game, like you have to practice situation where you are on the field how much times left are you winning? are you losing? you know do we need to keep the ball? do we need to play faster you know do we need to defend inside runs you know all these situations and and that goes back to being prepared and also goes back to that contingency planning is, you know, if you're trying to go play a, a game of football and you don't know who's in the game and you don't know what down it is and what's the score is, it's hard to defend every play. But, you know, you've got to simulate, okay, this is what you're going to get in this situation.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch gears on you, Coach, and I've asked this question in my previous podcast there are coaches in sport and the one comes up that comes to mind for me is Pete Carroll who is really big in sports psychology and mental performance has built the the CLCox culture around mental performance and he works very closely with his team psychologist Michael Gervais who is very involved with the team he's involved on the field during practice during the weight room Doing one-on-one sessions, game day, uh, very involved. So, from your perspective, would you do you think having a mental performance consultant with you or working with your team in the environment would you see that as a benefit or a distraction?
1: Absolutely, benefit one hundred percent. I was, you know, I was uh, excited. That you, Grant, were gonna come on our staff. But one part that was kind of like, ah, was that I knew we were gonna lose you as our sports psychologist. I am a huge favor of that, I'm a huge fan of that. I think it's great. And I'll be honest with you, I'm really impressed with how Pete Carroll has transitioned from the college environment to the pro environment with that sort of thing. Because when he got that job, I was still kind of involved in the coaching world and keeping my ear to the ground read football com every day and all that stuff. But I know there was a lot of insiders that were kind of like, ah, oh, his rah-rah stuff's not going to work. Like it didn't work at the Patriots or the Jets. And in fact, you read any of the books about coach Belichick, um, you know, you, people are very open about that, and how he was able to bring that sort of aspect of it into a professional organization, and get them to buy in. Hey, that's, that's, that's impressive. Now, personally for me, with the sports psychologist working with a team, I have, I think if you're gonna have a if you're gonna have a somebody that physically trains a team, you should have a mental performance uh, coach. Um, but I will say this, and this is just my feeling on it. This may be popular or unpopular. I'm not sure. If I was if I had the if I was calling the shots and I had the ability and the resources to do so, I would bring somebody from the outside. Um, but I almost want them to be there, but I think the the trick is having them there, but not having them a little bit removed. So it's like a safe space Mm -hmm. or there's like a delineation of like, Hey, if I tell, you know, Mr. Parr, coach Parr, my inner secrets, he's not going to tell, I know there's confidentiality. You couldn't do that anyway, but it's not about what we know. It's about what they know. That there's almost a little bit of a disconnect, a slight disconnect, between the sports psychologist and the coaching staff where they're welcome, they're part of the group, but they're not – the kids aren't feeling like whatever I tell them. Even though they're telling me it's confidential, that's not going to get back to the coach, especially if it's something like, hey, I have a problem with this coach. I think there needs to be – it's almost like kind of like that independent review, and I think that that person – you know needs to be in a position where they are accessible and they're a part of everything but they kind of stand alone in, in a different sense.
0: So you talked about earlier in the show that your favorite coach was Jimmy Johnson. What is his level of commitment to sports psychology or mental performance? I
1: felt like when I studied coaches and obviously I was I'm biased. I'm a University of Miami graduate, a uh, lifelong Dolphins, long suffering Dolphins fan, growing up in Orlando. That was, you know, those were the teams that were around. Um, so I'm biased, but I felt like he was the first coach to really tap into psychology, and I believe he got a master's in psychology from the. It was either a bachelor's or a master's from the University of Arkansas, and you know, at that time. It's it's interesting because as you know, sports psychology was born out of industrial and organizational psychology, and it's come full circle. where now industrial and organizational psychology uses sport as their a lot of the examples because there's no you know quarterly earnings reports and things, and there's there's a and that's why people love sports. There's a winner and a loser, and you see it on the scoreboard, and everybody can see. And there's there's you no know, passing the buck or You know, somebody didn't get this report or he didn't do this. I mean, it's for everybody to see. But, you know, when I was in that class, I I took a class in college, IO Psych. The professor literally, every example we talked about, was like, well, how does this apply to sports? And what he would do is he would use a lot of the phrases and a lot of the, the motivational tactics from psychology. And I think it's what gave him a cutting edge. And I have lifted... Uh, a lot of the things that he has said um, in his books, I read a couple books um, for, about him. Um, I've listed a lot of those examples, a lot of those stories, and, and just little he had little phrases that he would use. One my favorite one was, you know, let the mind control the body, not the body control the mind. And I I've said that a lot, you know, and and just things like that. And I loved. The thing I loved about Coach Johnson is he, he would give you perspective. Um, and he would give examples of, of things about how your mind – one of my favorite things they used to talk about was if you took a piece of wood and you put a cinder block on each side with like a foot off the ground and you walked across, it would be pretty easy. But if you put that thing 30 feet in the air, it would be much harder. And the only reason it's much harder is just because you know it's 30 feet in the air. And it's, you know, using your brain to control your body, to control your state of being. And that was his big thing. And then his other big thing, and the thing that I like a lot, was how he would manage players. And sometimes, you know, when to drive them. And, and you know, another person that influenced me is Coach Tomey. I worked for it at San Jose State. He was he was the master at that stuff. And he always used to say a quote that, and this is nothing about me I don't know if he came up with it. I, I think it's kind of an older quote, but, um, you know, they being the players don't care how much you know until they know how much you care.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think
1: Jimmy Johnson used that a lot without, in those words, um, you know, he, he, the closer you get to him, the more you can ride him and the more you can get out of him, the more you can push him. And I always respected that. And i used it. My, uh, my relationships were always authentic and they are always authentic, but, I use the relationships I have with those players to get more out of them than I think other coaches that have coached them that don't get to know them and get to really be a part of their lives, you know, outside of the the white lines, so to speak.
0: I think it's a beautiful quote. I mean that that actually uh that resonated with me just even, you know, being an athlete for so many years and um, in the game of football, but just if a, if a coach did that to me, that would make me feel like I had a I had a really connected coach. Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Now, oh, this is kind of maybe a long-winded question here, but I think this is very important. My specialty. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Within sport, and I don't care what sport it is, but. We'll We'll focus on football right now. For most programs, for most coaches, generally speaking, winning is everything, right? Again, it's a general statement, but there's a lot of emphasis on winning, and there's a lot of emphasis of not losing. So in the whole theme of disconnecting from the outcome, what is your thoughts on reframing an athlete's mind or a, or a team's mind? On focusing on improving and learning versus winning and losing.
1: That is a very interesting question, Um, and is—I mean, this is where I think the good coaches. This is this topic separates the good and the great, and the great and the legendary. Um, Winning matters. If it didn't, then people would get fired for it. And going back to the professionalism of high school sports that we talked about earlier you know people get hired and fired in high school athletics based on their performance now you have to do it the right way and most of the places around here that i know of are not what it all costs and this kind of this kind of question tur- you know kind of touches on a lot of things we talked about one there's you know you hear these stories about well, well when i played we did this and that well there's camera phones and there's twitter and you know, coaches have to be more mindful with their language and how they act. But you know, you're you're almost for, and it's good, but you're almost forced into being quote unquote doing the right thing because if you don't, somebody's going to find out. Um, but I think that to take the emphasis off of winning, I think Nick Saban does the best job, and it, it, his his word now has kind of become ubiquitous with with. You know, coaching and football is love the process. I can't tell you how many I keep hearing this from all different coaches. I'm talking about the process, the process, the process. Well, I'm going to be real honest with you. Before Nick Saban started using this word in the mainstream 12 years ago, nobody talked about the process. And basically, it goes back to what we're talking about, the roadmap and everything. Create your roadmap, create your long-term goals, and then your short-term goals How so you're going to achieve them. And focus on those. Focus on the tasks today you know we worked a skill for an opponent that we're going to play and you know if we execute the skill we have a better chance of winning well okay that's nice but you know if we don't execute you know if we don't execute this skill they're not you know they're going to keep making first downs or, or whatever, you know, you, you can you could take the well how do you win? You score more points. How do you score points? Well you either score on a big player you get first downs. Well, if you limit if you limit the amount of big plays the offense has and you limit their first downs, you know, they can't really can't really do much unless you give up points on defense and the kick game and things. But you know, I think you gotta break up. I think you need to figure out what it takes to win. You talk about it in a grand setting at the beginning. You create the goals with the with the players and the people vested and the leaders. You create your long term goals, and then you, as the coach, have to set the short term goals, and you just keep bringing it back to that. You know, uh, one thing we use and everybody does, but grading. You know, we we had a scrimmage uh, last weekend and an inter squad scrimmage and. We set up we, – we, we graded the scrimmage and we had a percentage and it was below what we wanted and we didn't even have to say, well, if you don't play like this, you know, we're not talking about the winning. We're talking about that, that, that grade. And it's kind of assumed. It's in there. And you just got to break it up and you got to keep them on task. You have to keep them focused on the short-term goal. And if the short-term goal is accomplished, then the long-term goal will be accomplished and everything will kind of fall into place, which is, you know, cliche. But I think really getting them to – you have to get the kids to understand what it takes to get that goal, and then you have to sell them on how important it is. And that's where I think Coach Saban talking about the process and that sort of thing really it comes back to that. Uh, you just getting getting them locked in.
0: I I love the process, and I, I use it a lot when I work with with athletes. I have in my time as an athlete, I heard many coaches talk about the process and the process is to focus you know play by play and if you focus play by play you focus on your responsibility you are going to get better you are going to improve you are going to learn and if you keep on doing those things you're going to end up winning it's just it's a byproduct of it for the most part but when i think of process too and and i've read some things about nick saban is when we do talk about what is the process, like what is the process, sometimes the process is what we've done to get us to this point. It is the summer practices, waking up early, doing your stretches, staying after practice. All of that is part of the process to get you to that point. That's more of a global perspective of the process. But when you break it down to really focus on improving and learning, is just to focus on your task play by play. Right.
1: And I also think part of the process is doing the uncomfortable things, like you know doing the things that you're supposed to do when nobody's looking, yeah, that sort of thing. That's part of the that's part of the bigger point of the of the quote unquote process. I just think he does a really good job of you know never look at the scoreboard. Don't play too high. Don't play too low. I mean, and that's taking that in with me. I we've been in games where we're up by thirty five at halftime, and I've been in games where I've been down by thirty five at halftime, and I've been in games where it's a dead It's a dead heat, and it's easier to say, but the scoreboard is zero zero. It doesn't matter what we did, you know, because sometimes, you know, you you get in a situation where you do you do everything that you could, and it just wasn't good enough. The other team was better, and I think that is when you lose that's when that really kicks in Is well did you do everything that you you know could have done or were they just better
0: Mm.
1: you know because and i said this earlier but you're always going to come up with somebody who's who's bigger faster or stronger even the best of the best have come across this and what are you going to do when that happens and you know, if you give your all and you did it, and they just were better than you, well, then it goes back to holding your head up high and saying, "Okay, we'll get them next time," right? And keeping them from, you know, from that becoming a a, a, a debilitating aspect. I mean, we were in, we had a weird year last year. We lost our first league game, and I don't think we as coaches did a good enough job of praising the effort that we did in the loss, it was a tough loss. It was a heartbreaking loss to our rival. We were controlling the game. We let it get away from us. And I don't think that I did enough, good enough job of loving him up after. And I think I was actually too hard on him. And it came back the following week and it spiraled way out of control. And, you know, the game got away from us real fast. And I, and I think that's where you got to be careful is, you know, if a team gives their best is... You know, you gotta, you you got. That's when you gotta change your tone, right? Kind of do the arm around thing, like I talked about earlier, when somebody makes a mistake.
0: Well, Coach, I wanna, I wanna thank you for your time and energy today, and sharing your thoughts on mental performance and how it's actually made you a better coach, and sharing your thoughts working with athletes. I think there's a lot of things that you said that other coaches out there can learn from you from a mental performance standpoint. So. I thank you uh, for your thoughts again, and I wish you luck in your 2016 season. Um, But before I actually do uh, end our show today, I always take a few minutes to talk about a few books out there. And Coach Vassar did bring up a few books, one um, from Nick Saban, How Do You Want to Be? Is there any other books that come to mind that you would like to throw out there, Coach? Well, I
1: think, you know, Coach Saban's book – Really is the best book I've ever read, um, regardless of topic. I mean, I've read it. I think it. I think it said three times before. I think it's more like four times. And I and I when I wrote my my master's project, I I gravitated it so you know, so much towards that book and how it was laid out. And the book earlier I was speaking about um, was called Season of Life, A Football Star, A Boy, A Journey to Manhood. It was by Jeffrey Marks. That's the book about telling players about um, how to tell them that you love them and things.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. Again, Coach, thanks for your time. Good luck in the 2016 season. And I will see everybody on the next session.